You're listening to the Ministry of Grace View Church. In South Haven, Mississippi. On graceviewchurch.org. Let's hear from Pastor Chris. Right? This confession, as far as Protestants go, this is the highest spire to which the church has risen. You know how we do the Apostles' Creed and sometimes the Nicene Creed on Sunday mornings. Well, uh, the reason we do is so we can talk about very specifically what are we doing here? What is it that we believe? And that's a tiny synopsis. But every once in a while in church life, you need a bigger, fatter synopsis. You know, the first thing that, you know, the first trauma that you go through when you get to college is they hand you big, fat books and say, here, read this. And then you've, you know, you think it's insurmountable. But by the end of the semester, you've gone through the whole book, right? And maybe learned 10% of it. But you went through the fat book. Now, the Bible, it's a fat book. It's not a thin book. You can get just the New Testament, or you can get the Psalms and the Proverbs. But if somebody were to hand you the whole Bible, every time you want to know something about it, say, here, here's 1,500 pages of dense, tightly packed information. Find your answer. It's really, you know, for most of us, it's impossible, really. So uh, having a statement of faith is a very important thing that every church should have. They, they call it different things. You know, this one's called a confession because that's what they used to call it in the old days. So on things like uh, uh, God, what do you mean by God? And a statement of that with biblical references. And, of course, you know, getting to things like the doctrine of the Trinity. It's hard for all of us. What do you mean and where are the Bible references to prove that kind of thing? Then it gets down to like simple things like what are you supposed to do at church? What can the church do and what can't the church do? Well, you know, the Westminster Confession was written in the 1600s to answer those questions for just about all of Protestantism. It's true that, you know, the Lutherans and, and some of the other groups, they were in different languages, had a little bit of a different culture, so they tended to have a different separate confession. But it's very similar to this one for the English-speaking world. Uh, you might even remember that guys as famous as George Washington and James Madison and John Adams, they all grew up on this. As far as like the public statement of, okay, in that thin, compact version, uh, what is it that Christians believe? They all grew up on this. This was the statement of faith for like, unofficially, the United States of America. Especially, George Washington memorized the entire shorter catechism when he was a kid. My kids still can't memorize it, you know? But then again, they're not George Washington. Okay, so uh, when we get to uh, the third chapter here, God's eternal decree, this was a really big deal in those days. Now, you might remember from all the great speeches of the founding fathers, they always slipped this word in there, providence, right? They always talked about God's hand of providence being on the nation, and that's why this nation was blessed. That's why we beat the English. That's why we beat the French. That's why the kingdom uh, or the nation was expanding, because of God's providential hand. So when they talked about providence, they meant God is actually involved in the things that happen in this world. He's not an outside observer. In some ways, there's only three interpretations of God. We get down to a lot of religions, but there's only three really big interpretations. One is usually thought of as coming from Aristotle, but it was a big deal in the ancient world. God's kind of like a watchmaker. He winds it up, but then it runs on its own. And he just sits back and watches and admires his handiwork. But he doesn't poke his finger in there at all, right? He might step in for repairs, but other than that, it's just kind of running on its own. We call that deism in the olden days. Uh, the other is that everything really is God. 
All of us are God. Everything we see is God. When you think you're not God, you're just a little confused about who and what you are. Now, that thought still dominates an easy one to two billion people on the world today. You know, all of India, basically Hinduism and all of that thought, it did creep into the thought of Western Europe, usually through Immanuel Kant and some of those philosophers that were very famous at that time. But basically, the problem is we're all God, right? Then there is the Christian God, who is a God who has created all things. He is not identifiable with the things that he created, but he is an interested participant. In other words, he has to do with everything that happens. He's everywhere at all times, in all places, and in all places fully present. I know that's a mouthful, but he's not more here than he is off among the stars, and vice versa. So the fact that God is actually actively involved in the shaping of history of individual persons and nations makes him different than a lot of the major interpretations of God in the past. Like there were entire civilizations that said, you know, it's really good to you know, know God and everything, but he's not going to help you out. He's just observing. Uh, the other thing is everything that happens is really just God working out his issues. It's almost like a Freudian interpretation of God. Every problem you ever had was just God trying to work out his issues. Thank goodness we've progressed to the point in history where we don't have to deal with so much stuff. But that's because you're God, and I'm God, and we're God, because everything is one, right? Well, what if God is not identifiable with any of the things he created, and there's a creator-creature distinction which is infinite, in which God is not the creation, and the creation can never be God. And yet, God sends his son into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. In other words, God pierces the barrier between himself and the creation in order to save us and interact with those that he created in his own image and likeness. See, now you're starting to get to Christianity, where it's not that God's far off, and it's not that everything is God, or that he's tied into everything so tightly, but both are true in different ways. So when we get to this chapter, it was a heavy chapter for them because it would be so easy to mess it up. All you have to do is have one wrong word and you create an entirely new heresy. And you've heard me say many times that almost every heresy that's ever been produced in the church was already there in the first couple centuries. A lot of them are written into the Bible itself by the Apostle Paul. He wrote 16 books in the New Testament. 15 of them are dealing with heresies already existing in the church. So we have this myth of the golden age of Christianity. If we just go backward, everything will be fine. Then, And the Apostle Paul is just running around like a chicken with his head cut off, putting out fires all over the church. So the church has always had this struggle of who are we, what do we believe, how do we work out these issues. But the second and third centuries of the church also were a creed and confession writing time. We get to 325 A.D., and... Uh, Emperor Constantine has to call together all the pastors in the world to come together and work out the issue because somebody had this great idea. Maybe Jesus wasn't fully God. Maybe he was just mostly God or God-like or God-ish. And that's why we have the Nicene Creed, which is a confession. So here on this, on the section on God's eternal decree, in other words, what's eternal and what's temporal? What just happens in time? And what's in reference to God's eternity? One thing that was very important to them is that they maintain this. God is eternal and unchanging. 
If God is changing, like or with the world, then he might be a different God today than he was yesterday. Salvation might change, ethics might change, good and evil might change. Everything can change if God can change. So God does not change in his essence or being. So there was this remarkable question that came up, especially in the 380s that swept through the church. If God doesn't change and God's eternal, what was he doing before he created the universe? Now, if you think about it, God doesn't change. There's no universe. It's not nothing. It's infinitely something. So Augustine stepped up to the plate and he answered this entire question in one sentence and sort of put it to rest for a thousand years. Does anybody remember what he said? He said, before God created the universe, he was planning hell for those that ask obstinate questions. <laughs> At that point, everybody just shut up a little bit, right? So we don't know what it's like to be infinite or eternal or to never have a beginning. Here's the thing. You have to deal with the infinite and the eternal. If we're here now, then something always existed. You either have to go, you got to break down and you got to say, okay, there was absolutely nothing, nothing, nothing. And then stuff started spilling out of it one day for no reason. And eventually we showed up. You either have to go that route, but that's... It's not just rationally incoherent. It's hard to take. Okay, there's no reason for anything. There was nothing, and now there's something, and there's no answers to anything. And it's very unfulfilling because we're not made for that answer. Or there was always something. The great atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell in the, in the last century, in the 1940s, had a great debate with the uh, Roman Catholic apologist, uh, uh, Father uh, Copleston. And... Uh, all of their debate hinged on the fact that Bertrand Russell kept saying, well, just the universe is fine. The universe always existed. But the universe is contingent, and the universe changes, and so there's not really any reason for the universe to exist in and of itself. Whatever exists, eternally and unchanging, has to be able to account for non-physical realities, things these days that people say don't exist, like the laws of logic and mathematics. One plus one equals two does not exist anywhere in this universe. And yet you think it all the time, every time you make eggs, right? So was there ever a time when 1 plus 1 actually equaled 37? It's incoherent, right? It's an eternal, unchanging thought that you being created in the image and likeness of God can also think because you're thinking God's thoughts after him. In that, the simplest thoughts that you ever think are an eternal expression of the mind of God in you on the created level. So whatever is eternal and whatever is the cause of everything has to be able to account for things that are eternal and unchanging, and the universe just does not measure up. So here, the first thing they do, they bite the bullet and they say, God did from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will. So, you know, not blindly, not automatically, not by intuition, by wise and holy counsel, he thought about this. Freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Now, here's what I mean by they bit the bullet. Everybody, there's only two ways to do this. God ordained everything that comes to pass, or he ordained nothing that comes to pass, or he ordained a few things that come to pass, right? But the rest of it's on its own. 
But that's going to have an effect on your God when you're done. If anything happens that he didn't ordain, he had no idea this was going to happen, nobody was more surprised than he was, right? He's just like, what? Uh, that'll have a terrible effect on your doctrine of God. And so the big question is, is that the God that's taught in the Bible? The God of unexpected you know, surprises? Is God just surprised by stuff, then he reacts to them, or did he always know what was going to happen? And for purposes in his own will and design, he sometimes allows things to happen that he does not like. Now, this is hard for us. Did God actually know that Adam was going to fall before he made him? Frankly, I think most of us could have figured it out, right? He made him. He designed him. He put him in the garden. He put the... He put the tree there. He put the, the fruit there. He set up this whole thing where I'm giving you all this stuff. You got this one tree. Don't eat of it. Now, a lot of people think it was a magic tree. Serious. You know, even Christian theologians say there were some properties in the tree. It doesn't really say any of that. What it does say is he tested him by putting something there and telling him not to eat it. You can eat of any of the other ones, but not this one. And Adam had the classic answer for when God came to him and said, why did you eat that thing? Right? Do you remember? He's <laughs> like, it's this woman you sent me. Now, God did not accept that answer. Adam was responsible for his own decisions. I think she was actually helpful, but that's not the issue, right? It wasn't this woman that he gave him. It was his own decision. Did God have no idea that that would take place? Here's one of the big things. When the Bible talks about the cross and it talks about Jesus Christ, and it talks about him coming to seek and to save us. It talks about him entering into a physical body and dying on a cross. It says many places these were eternal decisions in the mind of God and not a proximate reaction to the unexpected entrance of sin into the world. So now we get pretty metaphysical. Now it starts to blow our mind, right? God knew that if he made Adam... He was going to have to enter into the world and die for Adam to save him from his sin. Whenever he was making Adam, people get into this whole thing. Well, you know, it's making Adam a robot. No, it's exactly the opposite. He knew that if he made an Adam with the free will to possibly sin, that under the conditions given, Adam was going to fail sooner or later. Adam was going to sin. So before he even made Adam, he knew he would have to die for Adam and for Adam's offspring. It's hard, right? Could God have made a person that could not sin? What do you think? Absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, most of the great thinkers on this kind of would have been cheating, right? Oh, well, here's a tree. Don't eat of it. But I'm going to block you from ever even thinking you can eat of it, right? You now cannot sin. Here's the thing. There are angels that actually cannot sin. There are not human beings that could not, under those appropriate circumstances, that could not fall into sin. That's what well, the thing about free will is it's only as free as you like it. Sounds a little strange, right? When we talk about free will, it says here, they gave God free will in this sentence. Let me read it to you again. God from all eternity, by the most wise, holy counsel of his own will, freely. So they're dealing with the free will question right away. 
If you're going to come down to either man has absolute freedom of will to do absolutely anything, or God has absolute free will, they're going to bite the bullet and go, well, let's make sure we give God absolute free will. Now, there are many people that will tell you right off the bat, God doesn't have free will because God can't sin. And that's not the way that works because whatever God's will is, he's free to do it. Absolute power actually does make him completely irresponsible. You have to remember that responsibility is a word that means the ability to be responded to by a higher authority. God's not responsible to us for what he does. If he were an evil God, he could do evil all day, and we just have to say, yes, sir. Right? But he's not evil, he's good, but he's completely irresponsible. He's not responsible to anyone other than himself for what he does and how he does it. Now, that's a huge blessing and a good thing. But if it weren't that way, we could do nothing about it. Has there never been anybody that thought to themselves, maybe we just, the answer for evil is that we just have an evil God. Or maybe there's a good God and an evil God. They just sit on our shoulders and battle back and forth in our conscience. (laughs) You have them all the time. So getting into the free will thing, the first question they ask, which is the necessary question, is does God have free will? And they answer in the affirmative, which means the universe itself is not necessary, it's contingent. The universe itself does not necessarily exist. It could exist or not exist. God is not contingent. He's the necessary being through which the universe came to be, But he could have created it or not because he's free. We can't choose whether or not we exist, but he can choose whether or not we exist. That means we might have been, getting back to this strange thing, an eternal thought in his mind that he would create us, but he did not have to do it. He's not an automaton. He's not a machine. He's not a computer that's just spitting out data and universes. He sat, they say here, he, he thought about this thing and he made a decision to bring it into being. So he was free. Here's the other thing about free will. You can only be free to will what you want to will. Otherwise, it's not free will. I know that sounds like a redundancy, but here's the thing. Uh, you know, we've used this analogy many times, but you take your dog, your dog that you love, and your dog loves you. But big part of that your dog loves you is that you feed him. Not all of it, because they're people. We know that. But... They make decisions. And, you know, you open up a big can, maybe even the, you know, the bigger can of that dull pineapple, and you put it out in a bowl. And right next to it, you put a nice roasted steak, big fat one from Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, and you put them down next to each other. And for some reason, he will always sniff the pineapple, almost in derision. Like, what are you doing to me? But 100% of the time, that dog will eat the steak. Sometimes he'll eat the steak if you don't even want him to, right? We've got our dog, Maxie. She's a notorious felon. We love her so much. But she's got deep, deep sin issues inside of her. You know, even me, I'm the alpha male, right? She's supposed to do what I say. She doesn't have to listen to Denny or the kids. But if I go, oh, oh she's supposed to, she will steal my sandwich at any opportunity. And sometimes she'll do that thing where she's not looking at you, but she'll come up and sit with her back to you while you're eating, and she'll kind of look over her shoulder, 
time to time just to see if you've gone to the bathroom. I know what she's up to. So the freedom that we have, the creaturely freedom that the fallen person has, the Bible teaches that that freedom will never uh, resolve itself in turning to God of its own free will. You're free to turn to God if you want to. The, whole, the entire thing about the fallenness of human nature and the sin that's in our hearts is we're now inclined toward ourselves and sin and not inclined toward God. So free will is this, the ability to choose the thing you want most. Why do we tend to, as Christians, not smoke? You know, we didn't always know that it killed us, so why did we always tend to not smoke cigarettes? Because of the binding nature of it. Because you feel like you lose a little of your free will, right? Now I have to have this cigarette or I'm going to go crazy. Same with coffee, but I'm not quitting. I don't care. <laughs> it's a real thing. But whatever you want most in your heart, even if you want something else a little bit, is the thing that you will choose 100% of the time. Free will is free within its scope. The fallen person, the strongest inclination of their will in the expression of their freedom is towards sin and not toward God. Therefore, they never choose him of their own accord. Which is why salvation always takes a divine intervention. A hundred percent of the time, if God doesn't get involved in that, the person does not come to him. What exactly what God has to overwhelm and overcome in order for a person to have faith is their free will. God gives everybody complete free will to do whatever they want. But if he's going to save them, what he has to go after is their free will. He has to turn their free will from something that only loves sin to something that loves him. And we call that regeneration or being born again or coming to saving faith. It's not that they don't have free will. They have too much of it. Uh, in that, once we come to faith and are born again, there's still a restriction upon our free will. We're not free to completely abandon God and go back to what we were. We're alive now. We've seen. All of our inclinations have changed. Our actual heart, he says, has become a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. You can never go backward once you've gone forward. You know, we've got that thing that we always talk about. You can never go home. Well, you know, of course you can visit home. Thanksgiving, Christmas. But it can never be the way it was before because everything has changed. People have gotten older. People have changed. People have gotten married. You can never go back to what exactly what home was. Uh... In this, when a person is fallen, the freedom of their will is exactly what restricts them from coming to God. And if God does not in, come into that relationship and change the person, they don't come to him. Uh, so uh, in this, we say, why do we pray for a person's salvation? There's a big question that falls right into this. If God does not actually save people, why would you ask him to do so? I mean, the Bible tells us to pray for people's salvation, right? The reason that God, in the Bible, wrote down, make sure you pray for people's salvation, is not because he needs us or needs like, these energies of prayer that we have that get him to do things. It's because if you are praying for someone's salvation, it can very well be that God's spirit is working through you and that prayer to bring that person to faith. In other words, he's including you in that person's salvation, even though you're not a necessary 
part of it. If he does actually save people and can actually do that, then we should pray for them to be saved. If he's a deist God and he's like, well, I, I understand you want people to be saved, but I'm kind of out of it at this point. I'm just going to sit here and wait and I, I'm going to hope that everything aligns and, you know, Jupiter aligns with Mars and the spheres and the planets. And, what, what was the song from here? Anyway, uh, and I'm just going to hope that they get saved, but I can't get involved in that because I'm God. It would be unfair. I'm all-powerful, right? So the reason that we pray for people to come to salvation is we know that he actually does it. He can do it at any time. I know this causes a worry in us because it's kind of taken out of our hands. You know, I have to now wait for God to save the person that I love because, you know, they can't do it for themselves and I can't make it happen. And uh, really, as far as the Bible is concerned, that's exactly the case. We pray for those we love. And God even gives us these analogies in Scripture like, you know, somebody comes to your door because, you know, they need a cup of sugar. They've got to make a cake. They've got people coming from out of town. And they keep knocking on your door and knocking on your door. Eventually, you're going to get up just so they stop bugging you. This is the analogy God gives us about other people's salvation. It's a great analogy, deeply disturbing in some ways. But if you're praying for somebody and praying for them, does he not hear that? And might he not work through that in order to bring about their salvation? But it is something that he can and does actually do. Now, what does that have to do with their free will? I would say pray heartily against their free will being the ultimate determinant of these things. And pray to God that it be his free will that he make them a Christian. Because if there's a battle between their free will and his free will... He's going to win that engagement, won't he? He will win. So they go on to say this. According to his eternal and immutable purpose. It means his purpose can't be changed, and it's always been. And the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, they're just touching on a smoky area there where, you know, we don't know the secrets of God. We don't ultimately know what he's going to do. We know exactly what he's going to do in the big picture Every minute in day-to-day -day things, we don't know. He's got a secret will that he doesn't even tell us about that has to do with every one of us. He has chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory. Out of his mere free grace and love. In other words, he didn't have to do it. This is very important because it says the ultimate thing that is the cause of why God loves us is in him and not in us. Here's why this is so important. If it's in you... You'd better be pretty good and lovable to get God to love you. But if the love that he has for you just comes from his own love, then he can love you without you having to do anything at all. You know, your kids, your grandkids, all these things. How good do they have to be before you love them? Is it really that contingent? I mean, no, I know some of them could be real brats, right? Every once in a while, kids can start messing up. But your love for them comes from that place in your heart where you just love these children. That's what they're saying about God here. His love for you is not really contingent upon your high level of performance, which will never be perfect. It says that he loves out of his mere free grace and love, without any foresight of them having faith or good works. And this is the one that will get you in the interdenominational fights, right? Uh, it's right uh, third line down, right in the middle. Can that not be seen there? So, 
He didn't look ahead. You guys hear this stuff all the time. He looked ahead in time, and he saw who would have faith, and then he loved them and chose them. They're saying, that doesn't say that in the Bible at all. It says he loved them before they had any faith and before they did any good works. As a matter of fact, the fact that they have faith is an expression of the love and the work that he's done for them, not what caused him to love them in the first place. Those we were all here with no faith and no good works, and his love came from himself, not because we were so lovable. So it wasn't, and they do this thing where, you know, it's like a road, and God's outside of time and space, and he can see the road. So he sees the people who are going to end up at the right house, and he chooses to love them because they love right houses or something like that. You know, you've heard this thing before. They're saying here that's exactly what he does not do. People were lost. They were in shame. They were dirty. They had turned away from him. And because of his love alone, not because they were good or had good works, he chose to send Christ into the world to save them. It's a really important distinction. It really is. Or perseverance in any of them. In other words, just because they would persevere to the end, he didn't look ahead in time and see that they would persevere to the end and then decide to save them. It's really exactly the opposite. They persevered to the end because he decided to save them. Or anything in the creature as conditions or causes of moving him thereto, and all to the praise of his glorious grace. Okay, well, you know. So, uh, in Romans chapter 8, start from verse 27. But he that searches the hearts knows what the meaning of the Spirit is. For he makes request for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things are worked together for the best of them that love God, even to them that are called according to his purpose. For those which he knew beforehand, he also predestinated to be made to the image of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn of many brethren. Moreover, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God is on our side, who can be against us? Because he didn't even spare his only son, but gave him for us all unto death. How shall we not all also give him all things? And can anyone lay any kind of a charge against those whom God has chosen? It's he that justifies. Who shall condemn? It is Christ which is dead, yea, rather, that which is risen again, and who is at the right hand of God and makes intercession for us daily. So what shall be able to separate us from the love of Christ? Saying there, because we didn't cause it, shall tribulation or anguish or persecution or famine 
Shall nakedness or peril or the sword, as it is written, for my sake we are killed all day long, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nevertheless, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Here's the end of it. I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor powers, nor things present, nor anything to come, nor the heights, nor the depths, nor any other creature shall ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's the way the Apostle Paul sums up this idea that really our salvation comes from the love of God, not because we were good. So he goes through a long list of things that people might say might separate us from the love of God. And he says there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Now here's kind of the crux of this. You were eternally, it is an eternal aspect of God's being that he loved you. He made you in time. But long before you were born, you were already loved. In time, Christ came in and died for you. In time, you were born and started to understand these things. In time, you were called by God, by his spirit. And in time, you believed and were justified. And in time, you will be glorified on the last day. But none of it is by chance. And all of it is by an eternal, unchanging thought in the mind of God that he has placed his love on you. Is that heavy enough for a Friday morning? It's a super heavy idea. You know, one of the things I love about these guys, they were gathered from all over the continent to come together and put this together. There's 50 different ways they could have gone with this. They knew this was going to be a tough... This is that kind of a little chapter here that people will just skip and get to the next chapter because it's like too much. But for the people that want an answer to this question and that have thought about this, they need this one in here. They need to know what happened and why. Is there a version of this like, that you can understand? <laughs> this is that version. <laughs> no, they really did. They thought about that. Like on Sundays, we usually have a little portion of the larger catechism, which is this stuff stepped down, maybe available to the congregation of adults and older children. Then they have the shorter catechism, which is much more accessible and that, you know, new converts and people like that tend to like it because it's very simple questions and very simple answers. But what tends to happen to people is the shorter catechism just gives them enough ammunition to have bigger questions and like, why didn't they answer this better, right? Well, you know, this is the confession of the church, so it's serious, meaty stuff. Uh, as you go through all of these verses, I find that they do a pretty competent job of giving you the verses that say exactly what they're saying in there. What you're going to do with that is tough stuff. So if you get the big, bright line issues, like the fact, here's the ultimate thing they're saying. God's eternal is not contingent. He never came to exist. He never started to love you, and he'll never stop loving you because he never changes. He was not waiting around to see if you were one of the people that he was going to love. And he didn't look through time and measure out your good works and your bad works or how smart you are and choose you because you were impressive to him. To me, this is super comforting stuff. And it's written right through the Bible. So it's not like they're guessing or this is mere philosophy. It can be a little intimidating. Here's what some people have said in the past. It's so arrogant to think that God always loved you no matter how bad you were. So be it. Guilty as charged. Uh, but that's what the Bible teaches. 
So then I just come down to the fact that, well, I'm just going to have to say uh, what the Bible says about God is right, or I'm just going to delve into philosophy and try to figure out all these riddles. But what it says is, if he loves you now, he always loved you. And if he always loved you, he always will. And it says it explicitly and again and again and again. This is the way that we understand some of these tragic verses in the Bible, like before either one was born and did anything good or bad, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. You know, it's staggering. Did he know that Esau was going to be a bad guy? Well, he did, but it makes sure to let you know. I know you guys are going to see him be a big sinner and like a bad guy and like a stinky black mark in the Bible, but just so you know, uh, I didn't just reject him because of his sins. There was other stuff. And Jacob, actually, is a worse moral guy than Esau. Jacob was not the good one. Jacob was the sneaky one. His name, Jacob, means he that clutches at the heel. He that's a sneaky little guy, right, who cheated and lied to his father in order to get the blessing and lied all the way through. But at the end, the thing that he wanted more than anything else was the blessing. God honored that because Esau sold his blessing for a bowl of beans. And I love beans, but not that much. Does he love everyone, or just so the people at home can hear, or does he love those he's going to save? You know, there's this interesting way that the Bible uses love many times in different ways. It's very clear in the Bible that when he's talking about the salvific love of the Father to his children, that kind of love is only expressed within the context of his church. In other words, God could not even have loved us unless Christ had saved us. He loves his son, Jesus Christ, who's fully God and fully man and shares all of the attributes of the deity and never sinned in thought, word, and deed and was obedient to the Father even to the point of death on a cross. And so he loves us through his love for Christ so that he can love us even as he loves Christ himself. Now that is a kind of love that he only has for his people. I mean, any one of us loves the kids in the neighborhood, right? They come over on your lawn and they step on your petunias. And, you know, I love the old Presbyterian dudes and their socks and their flip-flops because they will, they will turn the hose on those kids. They're the only ones that will do it. But they're all baptized now. No, I'm just kidding. By a good sprinkling. Uh, so we can talk about God having a general love for things, even for the creation itself, which has fallen and groaning to be remade. But if we're talking about interpersonal, familial, fatherly love, every time it talks about that in Scripture, it's talking about his people. So one of the reasons that Jacob and Esau were born twins from the same mother and same father is so that God could make a point. That even though there was no distinguishment upon them, and that, you know, that's said earlier there, and it's also said in the book of Romans, where it's specifically right after these passages, it talks about Jacob and Esau. And he wants us to understand that it's his love that was the determining factor and not the sin of the people involved. So did God love Esau? Because he says, I hated him. That's my question. 
He doesn't say, I loved Esau, but really I hated him, or I kind of loved Esau. And it's talking specifically in regard to salvation, not just general things going on. He's not saying, I sat around all day mad about Esau. But in regard to who would be in the line of Christ, and who would receive salvation, and who would be blessed, and who would be a part of his eternal family, it was Jacob that he loved, and not Esau. So, when, you know, we do have to take Esau I hated in a certain context. He's talking about what he's talking about. He's not talking about, like, hating him as a person. But in regard to salvation, the younger was preferred over the older. And even though his father loved him and really didn't think too much about Jacob, Jacob was the one that was blessed. Uh, you know, it's... It, it's a good thing for the Christian soul to know that there were much better people than us to get saved. If God was choosing and grading on the scale and he was using math and the abacus, uh, I would not have made it. I'd have been close, though. Just kidding. <laughs> but, you know, it's one of the great mysteries of God in here that that's not how he's doing things at all. His love for you is eternal. He planned you before you were born. Before your parents was born, he he had your parents be born so that you would be born so that he could love you. He plans these things centuries and millennia in advance so that his people will come to be in history so that you would be here at this moment, knowing him at this time, and so that you can carry out these things forever after the end of this world because he's got big plans. So the generalizable love that God has is not the same as the specific love that he has for his people. I don't mind the other kids in the neighborhood. They're noisy. I love those kids, right? But I don't want them over my house. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's like you, you talk about you love your kids, your grandkids, you love them. Yeah. From the bottom of your heart, sometimes you don't like them. <laughs> So, you know, uh, uh, these, these are hard things. Uh, there's a distinction in the ancient theologies called the distinction between uh, the elect and the reprobate. And a reprobate will usually manifest their evil in time in this life. People have this big question about, what if Adolf Hitler had come to faith? you think he would have been saved after all that evil? Well, you know, that's a complicated question. We don't have to go to Hitler on every single theo theology question. Uh, but the answer is no, but yes. No, because he was a reprobate. God was never going to say it. He was totally evil. And when he got the opportunity to do all the evil that was in his heart before he had the opportunity, he did all the evil he could do, right? That's what a reprobate does. So was God ever like on his side? Well, no, because God knew what he would become and these kind of things. But is it true that hypothetically, if even somebody as evil as Hitler had come to saving faith in Christ, that God would save him and he would be in heaven on the last day? That is also true. So it's impossible that it happened, but it's completely possible. Okay. <laughs> Pam looks skeptical there. <laughs> yeah. So you don't have to worry about lots of evil people getting into heaven. That's the only people that will be there. Well, was he a good thief, though? <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> there were actually two of them. And one was mocking the other. 
But the other believed in Christ, and he had a personal declaration from Jesus saying, this day you'll be with me in paradise. I know a lot of people do weird things with the word paradise, but it means heaven. It means it. Uh, and people say, well, you know, but he didn't know anything, and he had never heard the gospel, and he had never been baptized. And, uh, we don't actually know any of that about him. How do you know he never heard the gospel? He probably did hear the gospel. That's how he knows who Jesus is, right? Well, is he just up there guessing? Luckiest day of his life was the day he got crucified. Uh, no, he probably did know. Because it says in the scriptures before that time, all Israel knew about Jesus at this time. And it says that by John the Baptist, it says literally, all Israel was baptized by him, right? Uh, so probably the thief on the cross knew just a little bit more than people give him credit for. But an all, also an implication of that is not that much, right? It's not like he was up there preaching a sermon or reading a systematic theology. But he believed in Jesus. And Jesus could say with great confidence, you will be with me. And at that point, the other guy is feeling very awkward. You know, because you're up there for hours with nothing to do but talk to the other fellas. <laughs> when even your wife is implying, okay, you've gone too far with that one. <laughs> Lord God, our Father, we thank you for this time of study in your word. Help us to look deeply and understand these things. These are the absolute mysteries that overwhelm our minds, Lord God. Uh, so we approach them lightly and gingerly, just trying to understand what is true and good about you. And we thank you for this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.